0: Joining me today is Dr Brent Richards. Brent is a graduate of the University of Otago, graduated in 1981 and is now currently the Director of ICU at the Gold Coast. He's also the Chair of the Queensland State ICU Network and has been involved in many subjects such as the development of the ADAPT course and the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society position statements on organ donation and brain death testing. Welcome to the podcast Brent and thanks for joining us. Look, can I just start with um, one of your positions, one of your numerous hats, and that's of the, uh, the chair of the State Intensive Care Network. Can you tell our listeners what that is and how you came to be involved in it?
1: Okay, um, networks were set up under a program in about 2001, 2002, which were mainly area networks, which was a way of trying to get clinician engagement, yet clinicians didn't feel they were engaged. senior executives recognised they needed direct access to clinicians for advice. Uh, and so a number of these networks were set up but predominantly in the southern area to start with. Many of these turned out to be quite successful, uh, including the Southern Intensive Care Network, and so therefore, under Stephen Duckett, they produced a lot of uh, national ne- uh, sorry, statewide networks, uh, one of which is, was intensive care. Uh, and I applied for and was appointed to the position as uh, as the chairman of that network a role which is about actually getting clinicians together, getting some of the biggest strategic issues onto the table. Um, It's a forum where they can be discussed and it's also a forum where healthcare system, there's a big push to make sure that uh, clinician networks in various forms or clinician groups are front and centre as part of the process.
0: How long has the network been in operation now, Brent? Uh,
1: the state network's been running about three years now. Uh, the area networks, as I say, started around about 2001, uh, so they've been running about ten years. So the the, the state network has been fully fleet since then. The good part about the state network is that it and acceptance at many levels. And so, therefore, uh, and at the same time, has been performing very well uh, in terms of producing uh, lots of good outcomes, uh, lots of good directions. And so it's you're well accepted and received at many levels of Queensland health. So uh, uh, we're doing a good job.
0: Now one of the, the things that you've achieved is, of course, dealing with the pandemic flu um, issue that came up a couple of years ago. Um, was, can you tell me how that came to the attention of the network and, and what your initial impressions were of it yeah, the, the
1: pandemic is a long story uh, it basically uh, the, my first inkling was overseas at a conference talking to a few colleagues and we started to you know, hear a few noises and started to get concerned that there may be a bigger issue than was initially thought so on my return from the conference i you know, found out about the uh, Manitoba and Salt Lake City, which had been their intensive care services had been almost overwhelmed by H1N1. Uh, Using contacts of contacts, I actually emailed and uh, had a chat with uh, the intensivists at both places and found out that it really was as bad as it was on there, and maybe even a little bit worse, um, and that they had been absolutely flooded um, and that their intensive care services went close to breaking and they had to fly patients out of their units. Um, concerned and given my role as the state chair I decided that was something I had to deal with Um, and so um, with another meeting I went to see uh, Jeanette Young, the chief health officer and in Queensland Health, uh, but also with epidemiologists, and started to put the scenarios on the table and work through them and realise that uh, we couldn't ignore it any longer and that we really had to escalate this and make things really happen.
0: So where do you start with a a major event or potential crisis like that? What are the starting points?
1: You used use every contact you possibly got, and everyone used every contact, and encourage people to just put their best guesses on the table. You know, without any judgment, just put the best guesses on the table. Once you've got everyone in the same room and deciding on what the uh, the possibilities are, then. You-
0: Doomsday doomsdayer type um, phenomenon before, haven't we? Brett? With the number of other, you know, the the, the bird flu a few years ago and so on. What made it different this time? Why? How how did you manage to achieve that engagement from decision makers?
1: Uh, talking to the right people at the right time, and I think that. Believe there is an issue that we have to respond to, then we were listened to, um, and you know, so our reputation is what actually got us to the point where we actually got good discussion. And yeah. it was also helped by having someone like Jeanette Young um, also saying yes. I think there is a major issue, and we really need to do something, and I'll uh, help and provide you with resources. Yeah. And so, uh, and then um, is what obviously sealed the deal. As Mick Reed said, yes, I completely agree. Get on with it.
0: Yeah. Were there naysayers uh, uh, amongst the intensive care group? Uh, Not a lot. There there was some, uh, but as you'd expect in this sort of situation, there's a range of opinions. I mean, there was
1: far less data out there than what there is for a lot of our other clinical practice. Um, And so uh, there was a range of opinion. But we got to a point where we were... That we couldn't get it, we couldn't underdo it. Uh, we couldn't be seen to underdo it. Uh, but nor did we want to go completely mad because, yeah. Um, yeah, there was only so much we could potentially deliver because our key resource was going to be staff. Yeah. So we decided for a yeah, a, a, a pragmatic but yeah, sort of probably about a 75% of the worst predictions um, response. and yeah. um, And that we needed to keep building some flexibility into that.
0: Can you um, can you give the, the people listening a, an idea of the scope of the issues that you needed to deal with as part of this plan? Yeah, well, I'll start with the story of the ventilators. Um, yeah,
1: that, uh, once I got sign-off uh, from corporate office, I picked up a phone and rang two reps and said, uh, I want to quote for some ventilators, and they get, oh, yes, they're thinking it was going to be two or four, and I said, no, no, <laughs> I want to quote for 23 ventilators. Um, of that for them and for us was extraordinary. It's in essence for the um, two brands of ventilators that we bought, which were our standard ventilators, the Avidas and the Puritan Bennetts, For the Aveda's, Draegers put on a special production run in uh, Germany and built us the 22 ventilators and sent them to us. Um, Puritan Bennett went and basically got ventilators out of every warehouse in Southeast Asia and sent them to us. So, around 20 ventilators a year. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, although it sounds like a big number, all you're actually doing is bringing forward your purchases by a couple of years. So it's, you know, when you start talking at, you know, at that sort of level, these are not big dollars. But it's actually quite hard to get people to understand that, um, that that's how you need to move. And certainly that was one of the impediments because we forever live in a system of... pay just to do it was actually one of the more difficult tasks.
0: Yeah. Were there other roadblocks that you encountered along the way? Um.
1: Um, as a matter of interest, found it difficult to respond quickly, but again, we found the right people in the right places. A few phone calls actually found me the right person, Um, and I found a SharePoint developer on a Thursday afternoon working within the Information Division or got put onto them, Uh, and on Friday morning we knocked up a SharePoint site, and by Friday afternoon we were live. Um, That's the fastest development the Information Division has ever done in their life. Uh, So we had a live SharePoint site. was where it was going what equipment was needed um, and that SharePoint site was open and live to uh, basically all the senior executive of Queensland health um, for people to, to look at yeah. and um, that actually turned out to be a
0: major communication tool
1: and was actually very important um, other impediments um, sometimes yeah finding the right people to just get it done Uh, people within Queensland Health because we're forever under the public glare are quite risk averse Uh, and finding the right people who would just run with what was a very high level of risk because we were making decisions on the fly uh, with not a lot of information Uh, but we just had to go with our gut feel. now for someone like yourself myself that's not an unusual situation when we're standing in front of a patient but for a lot of our non-clinical Most unusual situation. Uh, The the, easy answer to that was was basically that I just put all the risk on my shoulders and told them, okay, I agree with that decision and that. My problem. Um, and by relieving people of the ownership of the risk it made it a lot easier.
0: That's that's an incredible amount of responsibility to take on Brent in, in certainly in that sort of context. Was there ever a point where you felt that this may have been getting beyond the the resources that we had and you know getting that hair on the back of the neck standing up? Oh,
1: was the rest of Queensland Health. I got a a lot of accolades from the most senior people in Queensland Health as to just how well the entire intensive care community had responded. Basically people just knuckled down and got on with it Um, and we managed to actually have up to 40% of our total intensive care capacity in the state at one stage had H1N1 patients in it and it didn't make the press, nobody buckled, nobody broke. Okay, and yeah, the entire community just yeah, did themselves a lot of um, uh, just called themselves a lot of uh, good brownie points, but at the same time, just did a really really good job.
0: So, presuming of course that there is another uh, major event like this around the corner, and they're obviously unpredictable, what what are the factors that you've taken out of this in terms of planning for the next event?
1: And it just happened. Uh, we found that you, know, you surround yourself with the right people, and so we had you know, Kylie, Lindsay, Elizabeth, Roberts, Jill Newland you know, as part of the chat team. And again, they were just good people who just got on with it. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, um, you're surrounding yourself with a good team is what's really important. I mean, what you know, some of the unsung heroes, you know, even my colleagues here. I Unsung Heroes, I was pretty much offline during the day for eight weeks yep. because I was working very long days trying to make uh, make sure the system kept working um, and basically they just knuckled, you know, knuckled under and basically did the job and took over yep. what it, you know, what I, my other responsibilities were here so yeah, you know, getting the right people, getting everyone on the same yep. page communication is what's really really important yep. um, and making sure everyone's there the, uh, there's a few parts to that firstly there was the communication and the documents that we sent out and, and again you know, we got those from New South Wales and very rapidly changed them um, to make them Queensland and documents and then put them out with the appropriate thank you to New South Wales health attached to them uh, but that apart from the detail that was in them as to how we were going to do it it was a very good communication forum um, to make sure we had everyone on the same page yeah uh, the daily emails turned out to be a very important form of communication. Um, one so that everyone knew what was happening, so that no one was working in the dark in the intensive care units. Yep. And at the same time, it's that, you know, on an average day, I'd probably have to call about a third of the units to get some to get some extra detail or get some extra numbers because they hadn't got to their email. And that was at a time where I was spending a lot of time sharing with people what was going on. Uh, Communication just kept flowing, and that communication line turned out to be really, really important in making sure that this worked. Um, So that's a a really clear part of what we had to do. Some other lessons was to make sure that front and centre in everyone's discussion was that the staff are the most important part of this. They are the most critical resource. They're the people that you can't replace, that you can't find new ones of, um, and they have to feel supported, protected. Now we do that ourselves very well that uh, the people from outside of intensive care had the same view, um, and that that support was there. So, you know, one of the examples was uh, personal protection equipment as to how it should be used, how long it should be used for. And I took a very pragmatic view, which was it gets used for as long as the staff want to use it for. Yeah, you know, we will give them as much information so that they can make an informed decision. But if they want to keep using it, they're welcome to keep using it. I certainly wasn't going to stop them using it. Yeah. Uh, up to them but i would certainly give them the information yep. as much information so they could make the decision but the most important thing was to make sure that the staff all felt supported yep. uh, and the equipment part of that was actually quite a big part when you look at the equipment we bought we could have got away with buying a little less equipment but it sent a very important message both to the staff and to um, administration throughout the organization was that we were serious that serious time which needed a serious response and that clear message was was critical to making sure we did what we did we achieved what we did
0: one of the uh, possible spin-off benefits of this Brent, is the uh, rapid increase in experience with ECMO um how how was that played out in uh, in Queensland Health now
1: Of establishing PA as an ECMO service, which means that we have two. Um, but it also helped to consolidate a lot of the discussion around the advanced ventilation techniques, and there has been uh, some further work on getting policies and protocols out associated with that, because it became obvious that there was a lot of the stuff that we needed to have a state view on rather than a local view on. Yeah. And so it has improved the ECMO. Um, the, the question is that as uh, to how much that should skew our discussion on this because it was, you know, less than 5% of patients ended up with ECMO and so therefore uh, it was important to keep it in perspective to make sure that, you know, the, the, the Townsville's and Cairns were properly supported uh, managing their own patients without ECMO um, and uh, that they weren't felt left out of the process and that we didn't put too much time and effort. Um,
0: patients. Yeah. Uh, I was going to raise that issue of the the uh, geographic issues associated with managing these sorts of patients around Queensland and particularly the transport issues. It, it, did anything come from, from the experience of this um, pandemic in terms of improving our communication and referral systems and our transport systems?
1: even though it costs us $50,000 every time we do that Um, whether it's appropriate and or cost effective for us to do it locally is a whole other question Um, and that continues to at this stage go round and round but it's not as if we don't have a service because scrambling a service out of New South Wales is only an hour extra than if we had one in Brisbane Um, so yeah the time frames are not a huge issue Uh, so Um, into hospital retrieval uh, within southeast Queensland uh, is and remains an issue, but again, there's work on that and that's on the table. Um, sometimes it's actually easier to get a patient from Cairns to Brisbane than it is to get it from Redcliffe to Brisbane. <laughs> mechanism which is aeromed retrieval but as soon as you get road based uh, we're into a whole
0: different discussion. It sounds like yet another issue for the uh, the intensive care network to sort out.
1: It's an issue that we're already working on and uh, I actually had a phone call about it yesterday uh, in terms of progressing that and trying to get there's a, a trial and process at the moment in Logan to try and get a, a model worked out um, and mission to get it
0: properly funded. Brent, one of the, the issues that must have generated a, a lot of uncomfortable discussion for you with all of this was the need for triage when that was being discussed. I'm not sure whether it got to that point in many, many if any, centres but can you tell me how you dealt with that issue? Yeah.
1: care them with an intensive care. Um, triage is a clear consequence of disasters um, and it's something that if you've done any disaster planning you've become aware that this is something that you do and it, yeah, good medical practice has yeah, four pillars, autonomy, beneficence, non maleficence and social justice um, and this is where the social justice part comes to the fore and it's actually quite important that it does. People in most terms, they only think in terms of patient or Justice aspect um, is rising rapidly. Um, so, in terms of the social justice aspect, that's what triage is it's about social justice. Um, and so, the reality is, the average intensivist is actually quite used to triage decisions because we as a group tend to have more limited resources on a day to day basis than many of our colleagues. We can't just expand into an extra bed, we have a limited number of beds. decisions, often on a daily basis. So it actually um, it's an area that we have got significant knowledge in and that we can do. Having said that, um, it was certainly once we started to talk about the reality of daily triage within an intensive care unit that if you've got someone with a poor outcome in your intensive care unit and someone with a likely better outcome in your emergency department and no ability to shift them into your intensive care bed, Um, the reality is that you would be looking at um, triaging out the one that's in the current bed. That's a sobering thought for us. Um, The second part to that, though, is that this was a very, very important document because we wrote a document about how to do this uh, for people outside of intensive care because it made them and think making local decisions as they normally would. And then a referral process through to colleagues rather than external agencies to you know, to work to work with them on making the decision um, should they need that help. Uh, and that's again the process that you want. And the disaster, and this was a disaster, it was one of the other lessons from the disaster, is that you want people to do what they normally do and to do it well. Um, and this used to dealing with or working with coming and making proclamations, because that just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you really need the people who normally do it to normally do it.
0: So where to from here, Brent? Is the, Are you anticipating that there's anything left in the, the swine flu epidemic? We've been following it fairly carefully, uh, and it's, it's an unknown. As you know, New Zealand got a fair hit last year, which we didn't, but they didn't um, have a... Um, they didn't have a a solid vaccination program as what Queensland
1: did. Overseas there's been some additional increases but again they've been a little bit more patchy across the years. you may or may not know, but there's been this significant H1N1 in North Queensland um, over the first few months of this year, which looks like it's petering out, um, which no one can quite understand, uh, and it's not just increasing notification, it's increasing recognition. Uh, so for this year, uh, I, I would be highly surprised if we got even a fraction of what we've seen before, but to see something of 10 or 15 percent of what we or last time. It's certainly not out of the realms of possibility.
0: Well Brent, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time and congratulations to you personally on uh, the way that you conducted the, the exercise and to and, uh, your crew. Okay, thanks for the time. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website www.crit-iq.com.au